Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and with me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We are back from all of our exciting travels. I am back from Rome. Phoebe is back from much farther afield. Mm-hmm. She's been regaling me with all of the exciting stories from Japan. And Vietnam. And Vietnam. And I've been trying to make her jealous by going to London and going to the Harry Potter studios. But our travels, at least for now, are behind us, which means we are back to our daily lives and our daily podcasting surroundings. And our comfy beds. And our comfy beds and our regular tea, so that's all. Biscuit brew. All positives. But yeah, no, it's lovely to be back. And yeah, getting ready for the summer, which is nice. Which is a little bit of a segue into what we're going to be talking about because the topic really centres on what a lot of blockbuster summer event cinema movies and trends in those kinds of movies. I was wondering what the segue was. (laughs) Yes, so what we want to talk about today is mainly centred around female protagonists and female-led stories, and how they can be contentious, how they can be really good, and how they can be a little bit problematic. And the kind of crux of what we're going to be talking about is the issue with the perceived perfection of many of these characters. Yeah, we are focusing specifically on big movies. Yes. Mainly, Uh, because I think that's where you have the biggest challenge to portray a character. Absolutely. I think when we are talking about these, in fact, when I was researching this podcast, out of curiosity, I made a list of all of the movies that I'd seen most recently in the cinema, and... All but one of them in the past year, I don't go to the cinema that much, so it wasn't that much of an achievement, but all but one of them in the past year has been essentially a drama focused around a very complex female character, from I, Tanya to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, to Incredibles 2, and most recently I've just seen another movie called Eighth Grade, but I'm going to come back to that and the things that I liked at the end. So these movies are clearly able to deal with very complex female characters. We are capable of telling nuanced and interesting stories about women. Thankfully. Uh, Thankfully. But where we're probably not seeing it as much is in big blockbuster movies, big franchises, big fantasy, sci-fi, superhero movies. And in, in some ways it's not difficult to see why that is. Those movies are the ones that studios and executives rely on to bring in a lot of money and so the idea of throwing in characters and particularly female characters that might be challenging to viewers is a scary one (laughs) for their bottom line but I think it is interesting because it's coming up more and more because there is from all kinds of quarters there's a lot of online commentators who get very annoyed at the idea that so many franchises they feel are being led by women now or having that kind of shoehorned in to fit particular agendas or particular ideas but there certainly is a large portion of audiences that are demanding more female-led stories and And then I think the biggest issue is how much damage that does to the whole wanting female-led stories when the female-led stories are really really bad. Yeah that's the thing that I would say I am all four female-led stories, I think they're great. 
I would like to see them be better. There's a great Catholic speaker. She works in Hollywood. She's been a screenwriter, a script supervisor. Her name's Barbara Nicolosi. And in fact, she's just started a podcast called Church of the Masses where she goes through particularly Christian movies and criticizes them. And the reason she does this is not because she doesn't think Christian movies shouldn't exist, but rather that she thinks that they should exist and they should be better. Yeah, because everybody hears Christian movies and automatically winces. Exactly. And so I hope in this podcast, any criticisms that we are bringing up are directed towards hoping for a better representation on screen of women and women's stories, rather than saying that we don't want them to exist. Absolutely. (laughs) And if you're wondering how this ties in with a Catholic point of view, As a Catholic, I can say everything ties in with a Catholic point of view. I mean, naturally. That's what the word Catholic means anyway. (laughs) But actually, Phoebe and I have been discussing this for quite quite a while, maybe a number of years at this point. I think you first brought it up when you saw Wonder Woman. Yes. And we will talk, talk a little bit about Wonder Woman. But how do we reconcile this irritation with the representation of women, which is usually as something very perfect and unattainable with the fact that we also reverence the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. And are we hypocrites for saying that we get bored of these stories in which women are perfect, but also saying that the story of Our Lady is very compelling or that the stories of saints can be very inspirational? Yeah, so you challenged me on that a few days ago. And my response was, well, they're very different types of perfection. Mm -hmm. Because... I think the perfection that we see in a lot of big movies nowadays is the perfection of ability. Yeah. It's being able to do 101 different things, probably without training, Mm -hmm. that doesn't really necessarily tie in with the story. Even if it does, you're kind of like, okay, does she have to do that and that and that and that? Mm -hmm. Whereas the perfection of the saints is the moral perfection. Our Lady, the highest form of perfection, was a stay-at-home mom who had to watch her son be crucified. Yeah. She was not a warrior who rescued her son. Mm Mm-hmm. She was not a, like, career mom who, you know, created wealth for many Egypt. Yeah, and not that any of those stories would be uninteresting stories or any of those attributes bad attributes. No, but... They just weren't Our Lady's attributes. Yeah. And so I think we're just going to first set the scene a little bit in the background of the films that we're talking about and be a bit more specific about them and specific about the criticisms and the criticisms that we find particularly valid. Yeah. And once we've kind of set that groundwork, we'll move towards discussing the saints and Our Lady a little bit more. So just setting that up now, just in case you guys are listening and thinking, I have no idea where this is going in terms of a Catholic point of view. So we... I mean, we just about do. Yeah. (laughs) We're doing our best. So bear with us a little bit. I think some of our listeners will have heard what we're talking about and know exactly the term that we're sort of dancing around at the moment, but others won't have heard of it. So I just want to explain a little bit what the term a Mary Sue means. So a Mary Sue is the insult that gets leveled at a lot of the female-led franchises. And just to be more explicit about the ones that I particularly have in mind when I say that, the recent successes of things like Wonder Woman, but also the recent more mixed reviews of things like Captain Marvel. So within the superhero space, those are kind of DC and Marvel, the two kind of powerhouse producers of superhero movies. Those are the two female-led, and they've taken quite a while to come, particularly in Marvel, when you consider that there's so many backlog of movies that Captain Marvel is the first one that came out that was centered on a woman 
and that was this year. <laughs> but equally, you've also got things like Rey in the new trilogy of Star Wars movies. And even within the kind of sub-movies that aren't part of the trilogy, you've got Jin in Rogue One. The one I'm not allowed to see. Yeah, it's not P-rated. It's a bit too dark and violent for Phoebe. We're going to move into some of the more kind of fantasy or fairy tale-led ones with the Disney live-action remakes, such as Beauty and the Beast, Maleficent and the Cinderella remake. Yeah, I think we're mainly going to try and do a comparison between Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella. Yeah, for sure. But first, the Mary Sue. So a Mary Sue is is essentially an idealized character. It comes from fan fiction in which you could typically identify that the character that the author was writing about was an idealized version of the author themselves. They have no flaws. Everyone falls in love with them. Anything that they turn their hand to, they are perfect at. And or whatever flaws they do have are very superficial. Yes, exactly. And so those... I think Bella from Twilight is kind of... The kind of prime example, the go-to example. Yeah, the classic like, oh, there you go. I mean, the story keeps telling us that she's so plain and she she doesn't think she's that great. And yet, literally everyone who meets her thinks she's the best person that they've ever met. And her um, flaw is that she's clumsy. Yes. Oh, and stubborn. Don't forget that. <laughs> Phoebe knows my particular dislike of the character trait as stubborn as a flaw, particularly in female protagonists. But in protagonists <laughs> generally, simply because from my point of view, if a character is stubborn, that means when you get their internal dialogue throughout the story, they're constantly pushing back against the developments in the story that would make it more interesting. So should I trust this person? Well, yes, as a reader, I want you to trust them because clearly the story is heading in that direction and that makes it more interesting. <laughs> and generally, such character flaws don't end up with them doing anything actually detrimental to themselves. Yes, that even when you say someone is stubborn, that it doesn't really have an impact on the story. They still manage to get swept along into an adventure. They still end up where the story is wanting them to end up. So yeah, that like, I suppose the contrast that we could say would be someone like Harry Potter in the fifth book in particular, uh, his stubbornness leads to the death of someone that he loves. So that is maybe like a contrasting point with the stubbornness where it's just in dialogue, they might push back against something and say that they don't want to do it but actually they just end up doing it. Or even their kind of personal traits that aren't flaws, that they're like their hobbies or their interests are very superficial. I think there's been a little bit of a trend, particularly with younger female characters in big blockbuster movies at the moment, to give them an interest in STEM, in science oh. and in engineering. Do uh, they have to be into STEM? <laughs> I mean, I know I'm an engineer. <laughs> I know, Phoebe's allowed to say that because she is an engineer. <laughs> I, examples of that recently have been the main character, I think her name's Clara, in the Disney movie, The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which was a sort of adventure reimagining of the Nutcracker ballet. There was also a young girl character in Dumbo. Um, obviously it's in the books as well but it was done in A, a Wrinkle in Time to like varying degrees of success. Whereas we came up with a great example of doing that well. Which was a series of unfortunate events where Violet Baudelaire is the engineer and it's integral to her character and it's built in and it functions and, and it's part of the story and she's an actual person. Yes. And she also has a brother who does all the reading and a sister who bites things. Yes. And together they make a cohesive unit. <laughs> now the main problem that 
it kind of crops up when people accuse characters of having this kind of Mary Sue-ish perfection about them is that it's usually leveled at women and not typically leveled at men. There are some examples that, like particularly in various fantasy books, where you can point to the sort of heroic man that's great at everything and sort of has no flaws and everything he touches turns to gold. And even, I don't think it's helpful to just have the knee-jerk reaction of saying, well, Wonder Woman is perfect, but so is Batman. I think you were kind of pushing back against the idea of Wonder Woman being so much of a Mary Sue anyway, weren't you? Yeah, so I I went to see Wonder Woman. Phoebe hasn't seen it yet. I actually, I went to the cinema rather reluctantly to see it. And when I was going, I think the Rotten Tomatoes score for the movie was 98%, which I kind of didn't believe. So maybe I was going in a little bit negatively. But I did have a lot of problems with that movie. I didn't think it was a particularly coherent movie in its historical setting or even in some of its kind of character details that just made it kind of unbelievable to me. There's one point where she doesn't know what a watch is because she's been outside of time for so long, but she knows how to speak Turkish, which is a relatively modern language. Um, (laughs) So, uh, I mean, in some ways those are pedantic things, but... For me, when I was watching it, it made for quite a jumbled experience. But the thing I would say is that I actually really don't think my issues with the film were centred on the portrayal of Wonder Woman. And I think she's a really good example of how you can do a character that we were discussing is this sort of morally perfect character with her compassion. And that's her compassion is genuinely part of her agency and what motivates her and what pushes her forward. She's capable, but she's loving. And having those two things be on screen at once was actually quite compelling. I haven't seen Captain Marvel, so I can't quite comment on that. With Wonder Woman, did they give her talents additional to the plot? Or were the talents they gave her at least part of the plot itself? Well, she's part of a culture of what was termed the Amazons, which is an element of Greek mythology, which is a a race of fighting women. So she's brought up fighting. Yeah. And her, her whole race, which are all women, are all also fighting. So her skills in that area, she has a lot of skills, but she's kind of brought up that way and it makes sense within the plot. Yeah. Yeah, whereas I think leading on to the one with the biggest problem is where they just throw in extra skills for no reason, Mm -hmm. which is Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, so I think the main part of this podcast is going to centre on Beauty and the Beast, particularly in contrast to Cinderella. And what we're talking about here is specifically the recent live-action remakes that, uh, that came out, I guess, within the last five years. Yeah, because we do love the originals. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I really like both of the Disney animated versions. I did look this up before we started, and I think I'm going to surprise you here, Phoebe. The Beauty and the Beast remake has a better audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes than Cinderella, which I was kind of... I, was I mean, kind of, that's a bit useless. <laughs> so just just for any of our listeners, if you did watch the Beauty and the Beast movie and enjoyed it, clearly you're in the majority here. So I mean, I when I went to see it in the cinema, I went with someone who really enjoyed it. So it, this is definitely just our perspective and our kind of hang-ups in what we're seeing on screen. But I think in particular our nitpicking over what they changed of Belle's character. Yeah. There were parts to the movie that I did really like. Mm-hmm. None of them had Belle in them. <laughs> yeah, just to begin with that whole concept, the, the thing that we want to explore is the fact that in the Beauty and the Beast remake, they went to a lot of trouble to remedy so-called faults 
per se with the the original animated version and it's interesting when you contrast that with the Kenneth Branagh live action remake of Cinderella where he chose to do a very different like it it has elements from the Disney movies like the mice and the yeah it has the same kind of tone yeah and you can see some of the same imagery used mm-hmm. and you know it's the same kind of overall plot line. Yeah. Um, you've got like the mice for your little happy world mm-hmm. kind of thing. But they don't even have music. Yeah, like, it's, not, it's not a song and dance. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not a musical. And I think the point that we're going to make is that in some ways the Cinderella movie does a much better job of bringing a live action idea of a Disney princess to life in a way that doesn't feel outdated for modern audiences. Yeah, because I think Cinderella as a story gets a lot of pushback. pushback, And there's also all that pushback in general against Disney princesses. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Beauty and the Beast, it felt like they were trying to remedy that pushback by like... Shall we start with a list? <laughs> yeah, we can do a list, yeah, <laughs> sure. The thing that I think is most interesting is that Beauty and the Beast is actually starting off on the best foot in that, in many ways, Belle is probably the most modern of the Disney princesses, yeah. bar maybe Mulan. Particularly for like a classic Disney princess story. Yeah, like, definitely. In European culture, like she loves books, she's kind of the old renowned of the village, like, she yeah. goes off to rescue her father. She's not the one wait- waiting to be rescued. Yeah. So it it doesn't have those kind of pitfalls to overcome that I think a lot of the typical Disney princesses do. And I think growing up, a lot of, like, of us would have chosen Belle as that princess. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a real problem with the kind of perfection we expect from women generally, but in a kind of new way with the kind of perfection we are being presented on screen. And I think it's very interesting that Belle was being played by Emma Watson because I also feel like this trend had its beginnings with Hermione in the Harry Potter films. Which, sadly. Which I do enjoy, but they're, you know, I don't think they're, they're perfect, speaking of perfection, but they also knock a lot of Hermione's hard edges off for yeah. the, the movie version. That's not to say it's a terrible presentation of her, but they do kind of slide a lot of her less likeable characteristics under the rug for the movies. Yeah, I mean, I like Hermione in the movies as well as the books, mm-hmm. but probably because I love her in the books. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, I, I do enjoy those movies, but I think it that's when I began to notice it coming in where you could see all of these sort of abrasive edges being like softened off. Yeah, like in the first movie where she gets Ron's witty lines, Ron comes off as the kind of stupider character. Yeah. And Hermione doesn't come off as bossy. Probably partly because they cut out a lot of the like homework scenes. Of yeah, absolutely. Hermione going, you need to do your homework. Here's your study plan. So for the Beauty and the Beast remake, I think almost its main downfall for me and it's for almost all of the Disney remakes at the moment is the weird way that they try to play many of the scenes, not all of them, but many of the scenes beat for beat identical to the animated version. except it would be a better movie if they just did that and contented themselves with playing it beat for beat. I just just completely disagree, because at any point, 
I, when I see that, I just think I would rather be watching the animated version. No, but it would still be a better movie Maybe. than what they did. But because of that, you have this very, very direct comparison between the bell of the animated version and the bell of the live-action version. Yeah. So you don't have any wiggle room for saying, oh, well, she's her own character. No, she is literally just a live-action version of the one that was in the animated version. But then they decide to throw in all of these extra character traits to pander to... A modern feminist audience, I guess. Yeah, like, I, I don't she think she goes and invents a washing machine, mm. and is teaching a girl to read. Well, so she invents a washing machine so that she can save time, so that she has the time to teach another girl in the village how to read, which it feels like such an unbelievably contrived scene. And then all the villagers like turn against her and blah blah blah. Yeah, but at no other point in the story does she use her invention. Yeah, it like, like it doesn't come back in. She doesn't have to invent her way out of the castle unless you consider making a rope out of fabric an invention. Like <laughs> I mean, it's a very bad way to escape. <laughs> There's a lot of elements like that in it. There's also I mean, she tries to ex- escape twice as opposed to once. She Oh wow. Yeah, they they seem to just be very confused. I was but saying... even when she does escape, she picks up a branch to fight, but it's the beast who comes and rescues her. Yeah, but she st- she squares off against a load of wolves and doesn't even look particularly afraid. It like, oh, you're like oh, okay, come on. It, it the whole thing feels very inconsistent. I when I first saw it, I said to Phoebe that I feel like, in some ways, like we said, Belle doesn't have the same pitfalls, but because of that, she's almost the worst character to try and inscribe more attributes to, because she's already the whole nature of the idea of Belle is that she's the really beautiful one. But, unexpectedly, she's also the outcast because she's more bookish. So you're already holding two kind of character extremes in one. The bookish girl and the really, really beautiful girl. When you start trying to add in revolutionary and almost warrior and... like Yeah, you can like, does she have to be everything? Yeah, and I feel like it does a real disservice to... Uh, they always talk about doing these these movies to be inspirational to young girls. And I always feel like it kind of does young girls a disservice because it sort of tells them, oh, you have to be good at literally everything in the world. (laughs) Yeah, that's what being a princess is. It means doing everything. Yeah. Whereas in Cinderella, they make her character so simple. Yeah. In that her dual motto is have courage and be kind. Yeah, and that's the very core of her character. And she almost has very few attributes other than she tries to be the best person that she is in the situation that she's in. Yeah, and she makes the best of things. Yeah. Like, I was re-watching clips of it there, and mm-hmm. at one point she asks the prince when they've met in the forest, do they treat you well? And he said, better than I deserve, do they treat you well? And she's like, they treat me as well as they're able. Yeah. yeah. And, it's... and that kind of just really simple not blaming them, seeing them as people. Yeah. And yet acknowledging the struggle. Yeah. And I think, to me, it was such a really beautifully done film. I When I went to see it, I was very dubious about whether it was going to be good. I pretty much had to convince you to go. Yeah. I really didn't think it was going to be any good at all. And actually, it... I was very, very surprised. When I was researching this, I came across a really interesting article. I believe it was Stephen Gradanis, who I've already talked about in our discussion on violent movies, his website, Decent Films. But when he was talking about it, he quotes Kenneth Branagh. He says, Branagh said he wanted to make Cinderella a movie in which 
kindness was a superpower. And indeed, Ella's goodness and inner strength allow her to accept humiliations with equanimity, not because she's weak, but because questions of status and privilege mean little to her. Kindness and bravery, the virtues commended to Ella by her dying mother, make for a less fashionable theme than self-esteem and following one's dream. But as Stephanie Zakarek notes in her Village Voice review, it's a theme directed outwards toward the wider world and not inwards towards oneself. Very true. And I think that's a really kind of engaging distinction because to me the problem with the perfect female leads is that when they're so good at so many things, I find them very uncompelling. And I think people really struggle to articulate this. And even when I was looking up resources for this podcast, I really struggle to find people talking about this distinction, which is the distinction between how can a character who's morally perfect be compelling when we keep coming up against the fact that when someone is too perfect, you just kind of disengage? I also, to be honest, a lot of the characters tend to be morally, like, pretty morally perfect as well as ability perfect. Yeah. Like, what spells moral flaw? Yeah. <laughs> like, she'd be a more interesting character if they gave her moral flaws, maybe. Yeah, honestly. Because she doesn't have any of those either. I mean, to us she's a bit snobbish, mm. but I think you're kind of supposed to understand that given her circumstances. Yeah. I don't really approve, but still. Yeah. It doesn't I... hurt her in any way. It's not like there's a consequence of her snobbery. Yeah. It's rather the opposite in that she falls in love with the beast that's supposed to be a symbol of her lack of snobbery. Yeah, I really feel like they kind of miss the whole essence and moral of the Beauty and the Beast story. <laughs> Completely. We watched a, a video by, I think it, her name is Lindsay Ellis on YouTube, where she kind of goes through a lot of the flaws with the, the movie and breaks them down much better than I certainly could. I think because, as you can guess, when Phoebe was talking about Cinderella, she talks about when she first meets the prince, and this is long before the ball, Kenneth Branagh took the Cinderella live-action story in a completely different direction. Not completely, no, not completely different, but he... tied different bits in with the overall story. He definitely tells his own story, yeah. and he doesn't try to link everything back or even have everything visually similar to the animated one. It, it's its own story, and in, in that way it gives Cinderella... He had more freedom with Cinderella then to do different things because you're not having that direct correlation that I was talking about with Emma Watson and Belle. Yeah, uh, but in Beauty and the Beast, they still like they still try and tack extra things in. But that's it. So they they try to match it, but with their answers. So like yeah. I think the thing about the most recent Beauty and the Beast is that they tried to remake the movie but with all of the quote-unquote holes stoppered in it that might not sit well with a modern audience. Like they have to answer the question of where are all the Disney moms. Yeah which they don't do in a well it's not terrible but yeah I'm not a big fan of that section either mainly because it introduces a magic teleportation book that then doesn't come back in the rest of the movie. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand why she couldn't just use that on a regular basis to go and see her father. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. like we said, there's a there, there's more than one issue with that movie. <laughs> I think they tried to do a, a good job of replicating the grandeur of the the animated movie, but I don't think they understood the heart of the story enough to 
recreate it in a very compelling way. But like I said, in some ways, it, because it's so much about retrofitting almost the story to have all of these extra gears and wheels and bits on it that are more in line with what audiences potentially want to see their female leads with. Yeah. Do you think that expectation to have a woman who's good at literally everything is a modern thing? Or, I, I mean, think, I think we've got a couple of quotes of older ones that kind of show that and kind of don't. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a distinction. Women were expected to be good at everything all the time, but usually within a particular sphere. So a domestic yeah, sphere absolutely. and like a, let's say a decorative sphere in the within sense of like dancing and socialising and things like that. Like, I mean... We have to quote Mr. Darcy at this yeah, stage because absolutely. it is a beautiful quote. <laughs> so this is when Elizabeth is at Netherfield when her sister is sick and they are discussing the idea of an accomplished woman. And Mr. Darcy says, I cannot boast in knowing more than half a dozen in the whole range of my acquaintance that are really accomplished because in that time... To be accomplished was something that every woman aspired to be and she kind of had to be accomplished to get married. Yeah. Pretty much. It was your CV, essentially. Yeah. It was, oh, I can entertain you and save you money and talk and do you proud. Yeah. And the description of this accomplished woman is, a woman must have a thorough knowledge of music, singing, drawing, dancing and the modern languages to deserve the word. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking, the tone of her voice, her address and expressions, or the word will be but half deserved. All this she must possess, added Darcy, and to all this she must yet add something more substantial in the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. And Elizabeth's response is wonderful. I'm no longer surprised at your knowing only six accomplished women. I rather wonder at you knowing any. Yeah, that's wonderful. And yeah. I love that so much. In one of the adaptations there, there's something of Elizabeth retorting of, she must be a fearsome thing to behold. Yeah. yeah. I think in some ways that's where we run into trouble because, you know, big movie studios want to bank on stories that people already love. But because of that, these women have already got all of these attributes that make them favourable in the time that they were created. Yeah. And then they also have to have all of the attributes that might make them favourable in a modern setting, which is sort of such a crazy muddle of accomplishments and skills and talents. And it's a mixture of things. I am definitely not someone who just said the only reason we're having this problem is because, let's say, a liberal agenda wants to see a certain vision of women put forward. And that's an element. But like I said, I think we can also really underestimate how much uh, film studios want to make money and how terribly afraid they are. And we see it in politics a lot. They're so terribly afraid of having an unlikable woman or just having the confidence in their audience to follow a, a story of a woman who's not glorious and perfect. Yeah, I mean, even in books, it's difficult to find a main character who's female who you don't like. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, it would depend on the genre, but I think that would be an interesting one to look into. But I think the one that we were also going to talk about, and it's interesting, I have this joke where Lily James, who plays Cinderella in the live-action remake, also seems to have signed a pact with an old crone in a wood somewhere that says that she will be famous as long as she stars in every single British period drama made for the next 10 years. Um, and I think she's really great. I do enjoy watching her, but almost... 
every time I look at new news coming out, like the new Downton Abbey movie is coming up. I actually don't know if she's in that. She mightn't be. But it reminded me that she's in Downton Abbey. She's the protagonist of the new adaptation of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. She's in the... Guernsey Literary and Potato Peeled Pie Society. Yes. Which is a lovely movie. Yeah, again, she's very, very good at everything I've seen her do. I (laughs) I just feel sorry for her that she seems to be put to so much work all the time. But she also played Natasha in the BBC adaptation of War and Peace. Which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful adaptation. Phoebe and I agree that there's a ballroom scene that we think might be the most romantic, certainly dance scene, but maybe scene ever. (laughs) Yeah, just scene ever. (laughs) Which we love, which is actually the point that we're talking about. So Natasha, and I will admit, I have not read War and Peace. It is sitting on the shelf behind me. Phoebe can see it from where she is sitting. I will get there, I hope. (laughs) But I haven't actually read the books, but at least in the, uh, I believe that the BBC adaptation is for the most part relatively close but Natasha is that perfect Cinderella ingenue starry-eyed morally perfect sublime kind of character but we follow her as she falls from grace and falls from grace with just the very slightest bit of a push and it's so fascinating topples madly yeah and then gets redeemed Mm. as well and I think that in some ways was such a breath of fresh air to me on screen to see such a complex and nuanced character and have them go through all of the the highs and lows of what that might entail. Absolutely. That idea of starting well, falling and being redeemed. Yeah. That you don't get stuck as a fallen woman. Precisely. Or have to die to make up for it. Or even begin as the sort of dark, broody character. That you can see someone who begins as really good and you have such confidence in as a character that she is going to be the good one. And that makes it all the more frustrating and upsetting when you see her actively make decisions that are just terrible for no good reason other than her own personal failings. That she goes through this and is like a complex character and has all of these nuances and facets and you know is is quite an old character in terms of it being quite an old book but also gets to be available for a modern audience and be well received that way. Yeah I think another old character re-portrayed in modern audiences is going to be Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. Re-portrayed in Anne with an E and Anne of Green Gables is to begin with an incredibly morally good but complex in her creation character. Yeah. Like, you don't have to do anything to her to make her an interesting character. She's And she's so far from the cherub or the sickly saccharine Disney princess kind of character. Yeah. She tries to be good. And she also tries to be one of those characters yeah. in some ways. But she fails frequently. Yes. And she makes very stupid mistakes and you're very annoyed with her for large chunks of the book. And she also has flaws that don't just immediately go away. Like even the fact that she's sort of over-talkative, which isn't like we're going to be talking about saints later. That's not a sin, but it's maybe something that she's trying to get under control because it gets her into trouble. Yeah, or that she, rather she goes off into her imagination world mm -hmm. and forgets to do something. Yeah. And she, she does that over and over again, which is so true to life that you don't sort of have a flaw pointed out to you and then you just get over it like that and there's no follow-up to it at all. Like, she's to me, she's very like St. Peter. 
Like she just <laughs> she just makes those same mistakes over and over and over again. Even when she's had sort of dramatic like she does have moments where there, something dramatic happens and she learns a lesson from it. Yeah. And she does learn a lesson. But the thing doesn't go away completely. It's still part of her character. It's still something she battles with. Yeah. But in Molly, she's also, she's striving very high. Yes. Like, she's striving for very high ideals. Mm-hmm. And then get so high strung up on those ideals that they actually work against her in some ways where she's blind to her own life. Yeah. And, and makes stupid mistakes because she's stuck in a fairy world. Yeah. But, yeah, so she's a really in-depth character. That's the books. And then you've got, a, like adaptation from the 70s 80s I'm not quite sure it's a beautiful adaptation mm-hmm. which makes some minor tweaks just to make it adaptable to screen but is very true to who Anne is yeah like the character that they're trying to portray in that adaptation is Anne of Green Gables mm-hmm. they don't like they maybe change some of the themes to highlight her a little bit differently but they don't change who she is. Yeah. But then you have the Netflix Anne with an E. and Which, fair warning to any of our listeners who happen to like it, Phoebe does not like this series. <laughs> at all. <laughs> and I went into this wanting to love it. Because at that stage, I hadn't seen the other adaptation. I didn't have a loyalty to a different screen portrayal of Anne. Mm-hmm. I was probably even going to be moderately happy for them to change it if they changed it well. Yeah. But they just ruined it. Like, to start with, Anne comes in as, like, an emotionally neglected orphan who's just had to work quite hard and had a kind of drab, dull, unloved existence. Mm -hmm. She's been very emotionally neglected Mm -hmm. and said in those times she's had no bringing up. Mm -hmm. But that's it. Yeah. In this adaptation... She has to be, like, physically abused and, like, traumatised and bullied and all sorts of things. It's not enough for her just to be emotionally neglected. Yeah. And then she comes to live with this old brother and sister who were actually trying to adopt a boy. And they're going to send her back because she's not a boy and they needed a boy for the farm. So in the book, she's really sad that there's nothing she can do to, like, help them. Mm-hmm. As in, that she's not a boy. She's like, well, if you had any twins, I could take care of them. Yeah. And her strength lies in doing what she's told and being herself. In this adaptation, Van with an E, she goes off on a, I can do everything a boy can do. No, you can't. A scrawny 13-year-old girl cannot do everything a farm, a hand. farm hand can do. Yeah. There is just... No way that that's going to happen. And also, it just... I understand, like, kind of what they were doing in terms of the story, but it's its so short-sighted in, in its actual message, which is just that the idea that the character of Anne from the books was in some ways lacking because she wasn't able or expected to, like, haul hay or yeah. wrangle animals. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, because they've given her this kind of traumatised past and they've had a lot of darkness into it, they then have to go and make, like, the school children bullies, but they're not even consistent in it. Like we were saying with Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. of them being too tied to the original. Mm-hmm. This week they're almost too tied to the original because in the books she's got this best friend called Diana who they become best friends really quickly, and Diana loves Anne for her imagination and for her bright, sunny spirit, and just for who she is. But in Anne with an E, there's pretty much no perceivable reason for them to stay such good friends. 
Like, they've only been friends a week when Anne does something pretty dreadful in a use of her imagination that, in a kind of dark and twisted way, mm-hmm. that Anne of Green Gables never would do. And that turns the entire school, except Diana, against her. And like, that doesn't actually make sense as to why Diana's staying loyal. Being tied to the story and that you can't even tell a good story because you want to keep in these bits and then the whole character, like... Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense. A like, bit of a tangent, but... Yeah, like, I, I honestly think that if you are trying to create characters that are representative to at least some types of girls, maybe, if in this case, more tomboyish ones, or, like, in Beauty and the Beast, more kind of inventory-minded ones or something like that, that you should really build them from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Anne can't be a tomboy. She's far too obsessed with her red hair and not being pretty. Yeah, that's one of the big essences of her character is that she wishes she was pretty and she's so keenly aware of, at least by the standards of her time, that she is not. And that is an enormous part. And when I was reading it, I thought it was such a beautiful thing to be able to recognise that, like maybe I would have when I was younger, I didn't read it when I was young, but that that not every female protagonist gets to be the pretty one. Yeah, she literally says, I'd far rather be pretty than clever. Yeah, that's her whole MO. Like, yeah. that's, that's what she's all about. And that you can still wish you were you were the most beautiful girl in your class or whatever it is, but that, you know, kind of wishing won't make it happen and that you can be beautiful and cultivate beauty in a different way. Yeah, like, at one stage she dyes her nose garlic red because she's trying to get rid of the freckles on it. Yeah, exactly. She goes to all of these lengths. Doesn't she try to dye her hair as oh, well? Oh yeah, she tries to dye her hair black and it goes green instead. It has to be all cut off and she's out of school for ages because she won't go to school until it's grown back to a semi-respectable length. Yeah. It's very and funny. That's the thing is that you could tell so many different stories, but the, the kind of retrofitting that we're... Because there's such a huge nostalgia and I think the nostalgia does come from something that maybe is deeper within the, from a Catholic perspective, that is hearkening to stories that were grounded in a particular moral view and so had a very strong moral and consistency and had this ability to be a story that calls to the deepest longings of our hearts. Which is not to say that only female characters pre, say, 1950s are acceptable female characters, or that we should all try to ascribe to Mr. Darcy's list of accomplishments or anything (laughs) like that. Well, I think the wonderful thing about Pride and Prejudice is that he gets rightly shown up for that exactly (laughs) (laughs) but I think there's a real fear of trying to tell stories about people who just have strong moral integrity they either have to be really messed up like you were saying with Anne with an E or they have to kind of check every box in every kind of capacity in terms of their skills and their moral accomplishments yeah which I think is back to the beautiful thing about Cinderella Mm -hmm. that she doesn't have to do that. And yet somehow this character who doesn't really... Like, she faces a few challenges, but she doesn't face any big moral dilemma of, ooh, do I do this or that? Yeah, she's never confronted with an idea that she might join the dark side. Yeah. Of whatever world that she's in. And yet she's still a compelling character. Yeah. And I think it really centres on the triumph in the face of adversity and that triumph being the triumph of love and compassion and have courage and be kind that phrase of hers yeah which i think is that great high ideal which we see in the saints absolutely and in fact there's a great quote from Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, which specifically talks about this in the context of Mary. And I'm just going to say one short thing before I get into it, which is that 
the fact that many of the saints and Our Lady have this kind of perfectionistic aura around them can be difficult to approach. So it, it what we're saying here is not that there isn't any problem with trying to approach the saints and that it's totally easy and that you're never intimidated or you're never discouraged because of all of these examples of sort of perfect following of God's will. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely times where you read stories of somebody like flinging themselves at death and you're like, oof. They can feel very far away and removed. And thank God that the church has given us many different examples, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I guess my point is more not that there is no problem with approaching that kind of level of perfection, but that there isn't inherently an inability to find it inspirational or compelling just because it has this kind of perfection around it. Yeah, also I think because that aura of perfection is usually Mm -hmm. quite a false aura in that the saints are often the people who they might have a supernatural predisposition to holiness sometimes, Mm -hmm. they may not, they may, may be great sinners, but they are nonetheless on a journey. Yeah. And they struggle in that journey and they walk through it with love. Yeah. And so the quote that I was just referencing earlier is, it really encapsulates this. So Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson talks about Mary and says, If Mary had been our mother in Bethlehem, if she had wrapped herself in her unique joy, if she had been to us but a figure of incarnate bliss... Then, when the horror of darkness fell upon us, we too should have crept away from even her to suffer in loneliness. A religion that presented to us Mary with her living child in her arms and had no Mary with her dead son across her knees could not have been the religion to which we should turn in utter confidence when all else had failed. More, she could not have been our mother in any but an adopted sense if her bearing of us had been without pain. But, as it is, she who brought forth her unfallen firstborn painlessly brought forth the rest of her fallen humanity in agony and darkness. Indeed, she is the mother of the redeemed because she was the mother of redemption. She stood by the cross of Jesus as she had knelt by his cradle, and she is our mother then by that very blood which both she and we alike are redeemed." The mother of sorrow must always be nearer to the human race, even then the cause of our joy. Yeah, that's so very true. That even in the most perfect of saints, if you look hard enough, you can usually find some form of struggle. Mm-hmm. I think we've possibly mentioned this before, but we had that beautiful month in the Magnificat where we kept getting a story of a saint each day. Mm-hmm. And it was a saint who had made a mistake. It was such a beautiful reflection to dwell on. And it was usually a mistake that they'd made after their conversion. Yeah. Yeah, that it was so kind of integral to... Like, they were there, they were striving, they were in the monastery or Mm -hmm. whatever, and they made a mistake. And sometimes those were pretty serious mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And yet they struggled on and became saints. I think it's so important that after the Gospels, we still get stories about Peter and you have a story of Paul reprimanding Peter for having strayed away with the pagans yet again. Like, it's such a comfort to me that the rock, that this almighty powerhouse of a saint is the one who not only failed Jesus while he was with Jesus, failed Jesus as he was in the middle of his final act of redemptive suffering, so in, in the Passion, he... Yeah, d- Brother Jesse said the like, most 
really powerful thing about that, which was that you've got the dual betrayals of Peter and Judith, mm-hmm. and which one do you think is actually going to hurt him more? Probably the betrayal of Peter. Yeah, but it's true. It's still on a, on a personal comes, yeah. level. Yeah, and like so, he he just messes up every time. Every time he's been given every opportunity to see the light, he accepts it and he accepts that grace, and then he fails again. And Pope Benedict the Sixteenth had a quote on this, which was to say, "Holiness does not consist in never having erred or sinned. Holiness increases the capacity for conversion, for repentance." for willingness to start again, and especially for reconciliation and forgiveness. And so the idea being that the holier you are, it's not necessarily, although some people and some saints will be purified in the reduction of the sins they commit, but it is also just a holiness which opens you up to more conversion and more repentance and to say you're sorry more and to reflect on the ways that you've fallen short more and to repent of those as well yeah it's the lesson in being able to pick yourself up again yeah of allowing god to pick you up yeah carry you and i think our faith has something really important to say about perfectionism and the expectation that we should and can do everything and that actually by contrast the christian and the catholic path to holiness is in doing the will of the Father, which may or may not be glorified in the way that you use your talents. You know, that there's just a, ta- there's a task in front of you that is set by God. And in fact, Cardinal Newman has that prayer where he says, God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed to me some work which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between person. So the idea that it it is not that you have to solve everything in the world. You are just called to do the thing that is in front of you and put there by God. And so, again, (laughs) we've been doing a lot of... uh, Clearly, this podcast is a very good recommendation for the Magnificat because we seem to draw a lot of inspiration from it. But when I was in Rome, one of the meditations for the day I really thought was among the most powerful that I'd ever come across. And it was by Father Bonaventure Perquin, who was a Dominican priest. In he Recently, he died in 1970. But he wrote, It does not matter what kind of task we have, or whether it seems important or not. Our Lord could have brought more tangible results out of his work at once, and made a stir in the world as a whole. But this was not his task. He did only what the Father wanted. Some people have more spectacular tasks than others. But we must not assess the value of our lives in the sight of God by the world's values. We may not even be meant to use all our talents in this life, for some may be meant to lie fallow. So let us not fret if our lives do not seem to provide us with much opportunity to display them. We only have to do what we are asked, just as our Lord did. He lived in a corner of Palestine, putting up with the scribes and the Pharisees. He saw infinite possibilities in his work, but some were left undone during his lifetime because he concentrated everything on doing precisely what the Father wanted. I think that's so fascinating, the idea that you might have talents that lie fallow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so countercultural and so not what the world tells you. It says, use all of your resources, have the biggest impact, do the most things. Yeah, and I think we can also get really stressed when we feel like 
we're not using all of our talents or that there's talents lying uncultivated. And particularly from a Catholic point of view or a Christian point of view, you might feel that you're letting God down. Yeah. If you're not utilising all of your talents to give glory to him. Like you've got that parable of the talents. Yeah. Like the five talents, the three talents and the one talent of putting them to use. Mm -hmm. And you hear that and you automatically correlate gold talents with ability talents. Yeah. And think that God is demanding that you put all of your abilities to use. Yeah. Whereas really he's calling you... To obedience. To obedience. And to using your spiritual talents and to using your talents in the way that God is putting in front of you. Yeah. This is not a case against not trying to give God glory or not using your talents at all. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it is a good thing to have a job that uses your abilities or some of them. Mm -hmm. But I think we don't need to stress about whether they're all being used to the cul- mm. like the climax of what could possibly be if we are simply doing the will of God. Yeah, because in some ways the idea might be that you should sort of wring yourself out like a cloth until there's no drop of talent left. It's um, a very uncatholic thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is also where the saints can inform us because maybe the saints do portray a kind of almost unattainable level of sanctity and spiritual brilliance but they typically have it in one particular direction you're typically a Teresa of Avila or a Mother Teresa you know or that you could be a missionary or a mystic yeah the the great saints of prayer Mm -hmm. oh like there's a lot of saints who are missionary and have really strong prayer lives to inform that mission Mm -hmm. but the greatest saints of prayer are the ones who go and cloister themselves off from the world. The saint in the Magnificat today was a young woman who went to a monastery and went, I meant to live here, like shut herself up in a room there until she died. And even I think God also really delights in taking the people who don't have the obvious talents and putting them in into the spaces where someone with a particular talent in that area might even have a failing of like enjoying the spotlight too much or something like that. Like I think of St. Bernadette who couldn't pass her catechism class and had no particular talent with conveying theology, certainly. And yet she was the one whose vision of Our Lady reinforced and confirmed the theology of the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, because she could just say, I am the Immaculate Conception. Yeah. They all went, how did she learn that word? (laughs) (laughs) And also that, I've certainly prayed about this a lot, there is the line from Jesus in the Gospels where he said, be perfect like your Heavenly Father is perfect. I certainly find that a very intimidating prospect because I think I can be quite hard on myself, as most, I think most conscientious people will be. But I do rely on Thomas Merton's Prayer of Abandonment where he says, but I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. That's so beautiful. Because I think the world today tells us that perfection is the perfection of ability. Mm -hmm. And also, if you tried and failed, it doesn't really count. Mm -hmm. But rather, for us, it's the perfection of trying to please God. And also that in some ways the perfection that we're aiming for, not that it's easy to wake up and be a Thomas Merton or any kind of saint. We wish. But that the perfection 
is in a weird way a sort of achievable kind of perfection, which is to, I think we're going to talk about uh, Therese of Lisieux for a yeah. little bit, but that it's the doing the little things in your life well. And John Henry Newman, soon to be Saint John Henry Newman, whoop, whoop. has a great quote on this where he says, it is the saying of holy men that if we wish to be perfect, we have nothing more to do than to perform the ordinary duties of the day well. A short road to perfection Short, not because easy, but because pertinent and intelligible. There are no short ways to perfection, but there are sure ones. We must bear in mind what is meant by perfection. It does not mean an extraordinary service, anything out of the way, or especially heroic. Not all have the opportunity of heroic acts, of sufferings, but it means what the word perfection ordinarily means. By perfect, we mean the opposite of imperfect, which I think is a very C.S. Lewis phrase. As we all know what imperfection in religious service means, we know by the contrast what is meant by perfection. That's so beautiful. And it ties in really well with St. Therese of Lisieux. Yeah. Who I think we're going to talk about because she's kind of a princess saint and we're kind of on a run of princesses. Yeah, exactly. I was saying that, that if, if there was ever a Disney saint, certainly I used a very mercenary word when I said in the marketing of St. Therese of Lisieux or in her branding. Yeah, uh, like <laughs> her emblem is roses. Mm-hmm. She's often portrayed as a very sweet girl Mm -hmm. she's kind of held up there as like an emblem of innocence and whatnot yeah that she has all of those like you kind of expect birds to fly out of the sky whenever she sort of speaks you know yeah pretty much but she is such a compelling character and if you haven't read The Story of a Soul, I would highly recommend it. I see Phoebe giving me the side eye as we speak. You haven't read it, have No. You? <laughs> <laughs> well, you recommend enough books to me. <laughs> but it was a book that changed my view on cloistered life permanently. Mm. And actually helped me to understand the true beauty in that bizarre thing which some Catholics do of going away and shutting yourselves in a, in a cloister and not leaving it just to pray. And even in a countercultural mindset that we're aiming for, that seems so bizarre. Yeah. You kind of think, oh, but wouldn't you be better off like going out on the missions or like... You, using, using your talents. Using your talents, yeah. yeah. Don't you have... Things that God is calling you to do. Couldn't you have some kind of practical, tangible success in life? Yeah. Even in a religious way? Because obviously we have some wonderful, very active religious sisters. But then you have these cloistered nuns whose mission is to pray the prayers of the church. And... That's what they do. That's what they do. And that's their path to holiness. And that she has her own struggles and weaknesses and failings which you see more clearly when you actually read into them again like I said you can be a bit cynical you know we do technically in in a weird way market saints in particular ways yeah I think the story of a soul gives you an insight into her character to some extent the depth of her holiness like Mm -hmm. it doesn't just allow you to read the book and think that she wasn't as good as everybody's painted her to be Mm -hmm. in a very real way it shows you how deeply holy she was, but also how she strived for it. And how she strived with it with such humility that 
makes it seem possible. Yeah. It's the perfection that we can strive for. Because for her, it's a little way. And I think one of the really telling parts about her is, in her time, one of the big things was to do penance. And she wants to be this great saint who does penance for people. So she tries wearing this cross with, like, jagged edges on it. Mm -hmm. And she can't do it, it makes her really sick. It's literally something that she's not able to do. So instead she has to find other ways of being holy. So this is just a quote from the story of a soul. I concentrated most of all on hidden acts of virtue. I used to like folding up the sisters' choir mantles when they had forgotten them and would seek out a thousand ways of doing things for them. I was also given an attraction to penance, though I was never allowed to indulge in it. The only mortification which came my way was the mortification of self-love but it did me much more good than corporal penances would have done. And I think that really sort of ties together everything we've been talking about because what our struggles with the current portrayal of women in these big blockbuster movies is that they are perfect in a very worldly way, which I don't necessarily mean they are worldly characters in the sense that maybe like they're obsessed with getting money or fortune, but that they achieve a worldly level of perfection and success, which has some moral elements in it, but it also has a lot of practical expectations that you would be very attractive to the people around you, that you would be, at least in some capacity, very beautiful, that you would have many skills and you get to use these many skills and you get to be the hero. Yeah, it's not just setting the bar high, Mm -hmm. it's setting multiple bars high in different directions. Yeah, and we haven't quite touched on, uh, we've mentioned it slightly, but how this relates to male characters I think that's kind of a separate thing I'm not saying that that doesn't exist in male characters I think because in some ways these female-led franchises are relatively new they stand out more and they have received more negative attention because of that but I still think that like I'm not saying that they only exist in women it's just that they've been more noticeable lately in women but also that women have always had such high expectations and in some ways Like we were saying that moral expectations can be good because the idea that you're reaching towards God is of course a good thing. But when you put the burden of having so many other skills and so many other talents and so many other attributes on top of that, that it's so cumbersome and so difficult. Yeah, I think St. Therese of Lisieux's Little Way is such a perfect example of going against that. Mm -hmm. That she seeks to do good in the little things that are in her sphere of knowledge. Yeah. Like, she does good by smiling at a sister that she finds really difficult. By not... Some things that are slightly bizarre to us, like not correcting someone who thinks that she's done something like broken a vase. Mm-hmm. That she accepts that mortification, which I suppose when you think of it in terms of a convent of sisters and... She's accepting that mortification for another sister. Yeah. Makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. And so that when we want to see these great big hero characters, that that doesn't necessarily mean that the only type of person that we can accept anymore is an anti-hero or someone who's kind of cynical or, you know, someone who has this kind of darker element to them. That we can have these big, bright, beautiful hero characters 
Yeah, they can be bright stars that shine and beckon us to them. And they can be compelling, but what we're missing is that it's not about having many skills and talents, and but it's about having a core moral goodness that is on a journey towards God. Absolutely. And uh, and the, I, I'll also throw in this, that uh, like I said earlier, thank God the church gives us lots of different examples. There are also great stories of sort of, like we were saying, the, the fallen to the redeemed. Yeah. Which also make for great stories and also comes up in the lives of saints. You know, you've got St. Augustine. But if you're looking at women, I mean, I think the church gets accused of sort of pigeonholing women as only being like the good, bright, beautiful type. And Phoebe and I both have virgin martyrs as our confirmation saints and I definitely understand that it can feel a little bit intimidating and not very relatable sometimes but then you've also got people like Dorothy Day who had an abortion and then became this great Catholic writer and thinker or even Saint Mary of Egypt who was oh she's incredible yeah she was uh, they reckon now that like you would now describe her as a nymphomaniac she saw it as her mission in life to seduce and sleep with as many men as possible and to deliberately to corrupt them in that way and she had an encounter with Christ and converted she went out into the desert to do penance for all that she had done Mm -hmm. and her repentance was so great that she died that night and the saint who she'd followed out there saw her soul being had a vision of her soul being carried up to heaven by the angels which is just so unbelievably stunning and cool and that like even you know like margaret clitheroe who was who was a catholic in the recusant time where they were trying to hide priests and and come down on catholics but you know there's that interesting tension of her technically that that she's being traitorous to her country and that yeah like, fascinating that you can have these more complex characters but that that doesn't mean that the good and the bright sort of pure beautiful morally perfect saints aren't compelling and aren't worthy of our attention and or can be just kind of swept to one side or need all of these extra gimmicks to kind of make them interesting yeah that we can actually relate to someone who meets a much higher standard than we do and actually what the church calls us to do is to become friends with those saints and to be inspired by the perfection that they have achieved and to ask for their help in achieving that same perfection in our lives. Because that's the wonderful thing about the saints, that we're not asked to just read about them and try our best to be like them. We can actually ask them to come and help us too. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that is our, I guess, maybe more unusual take on the new batch of female-led franchises in Hollywood these days that you enjoyed that, it. that maybe they should take a few leaves out of the saints lives <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely so to finish up this episode we just have our final question as always to ask Phoebe what are you enjoying at the moment oh tricky one well I mean I did just finish listening to Anne of the Island on my way back but I think I've probably talked enough of Anne of, Anne of Green Gables so while I was traveling I also read, much to Rachel's delight, The Club of Queer Traits. This is such a triumph for me. I One by one, I am getting as many people as possible to read this. If you've listened to our episode on Catholicism and detective fiction, you'll have heard about it. It's just my favourite Chesterton fiction ever. <laughs> it is absolutely 
beautiful. It's one of the funniest things I've read in quite a while. Mm -hmm. I was on the plane while reading it and had to try not to laugh too loudly because everybody else was sleeping. (laughs) But yeah, it's just a masterpiece of writing and it just takes this most wonderful extra unveil at the end. Mm -hmm. But just delicious. It's the kind of masterclass in Chestertonian paradox. Yeah, it was a book that... I had to put down because I was reading it too fast and I couldn't bear to be finished it yet. I was exactly the same. <laughs> That's so good. Okay, and um, for the thing that I'm enjoying, I went to the cinema, like I said, recently. I was supposed to be going to a theatre event, um, but it, the theatre cancelled on me. They weren't ready and so they delayed the opening day and so I didn't get to go. Very but, sad. But instead, my friend Connor, who is a very faithful and supportive listener, so shout out to Connor. My friend Connor and I went to see Eighth Grade, which is a movie written and directed by comedian Bo Burnham and is a coming-of-age story in a very kind of well-established teenage coming-of-age story genre. What it does, which is interesting as suggested by the name Eighth Grade, which if you know the American schooling system, is a bit younger than your typical teenage movie. Those, the typical one are usually set around high school. So Eighth Grade is, is the final year of middle grade in America so she's I think she's 13 14 and so she and she is played by someone who is she might have been slightly older than that but she was very much of that age she's not that's very impressive (laughs) she's not the typical American 30 year old posing as a 16 year old which is what you seem to get endlessly these days but it's a very very real funny in a very heartfelt way not in a very contrived way it is a comedy but it doesn't have a lot of setups where somebody makes a joke and then something funny happens you know it's a very organic kind of comedy it's also quite cringeworthy but again in a way that isn't contrived and it isn't spiteful it is just that kind of heartfelt cringiness of that age and it's it does a <laughs> yeah, very that's an awkward age it, it really is <laughs> and uh it does a really good job of balancing the problems we have with technology particularly with young people today without being a sort of fuddy-duddy well we should all give up our mobile phones and go live in the woods like it manages to strike that balance of showing what is what it's doing that's good but also showing how it's pulling us away from our community and the people that we love in some ways Um, and uh, yeah I'd really recommend it so that was uh, eighth grade And other than that, again, we've had a couple of people reach out recently, especially on social media. Thank you so much. I really am so grateful. I'm really grateful for anyone who listens. And so I just wanted to say thank you. And I hope you continue to listen. And please continue to reach out. uh, As we always say, it makes our day. It makes our day. Please review the uh, podcast. I know I'm really lazy about doing it for a podcast that I like, but I need to take my own medicine and start reviewing more because it really. The, the way that the algorithms work with uh, specifically iTunes in particular, the more people review it, the more people will find it and the more people will listen. So it really helps us out in terms of reaching more people, which is always nice. But yes, so, you know, rate, review, share, tell people about it, all of those good things. But um, we are great for all of our listeners. So until next time, goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. 
You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.